15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Wait a minute. I've heard that before. That's the note Jeremy wrote to me in my yearbook in the sixth grade. How'd you even know that? Because it's from Geico. Yeah, yeah wait, here it is. Dear Luke, have a great summer. P.S. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Love, Jeremy. Geico's had this tagline for years because we help save people money. So wait, you're saying Jeremy copied you? <laughs> yeah, that actually does sound like something the J-Man would do. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Hey guys, this is my true crime podcast and I'm Brandy. This is my podcast where I research any and all things true crime and I share what I find with you guys. For those of you who are new, welcome, and thank you for joining me. To my dudes who tune in every week, welcome back, and thank you so much for your support. So tonight, I'm recording in my car. Everyone in the house is asleep, so I can't use my usual recording place. And I figured, since I can't sleep... I'll go ahead and record this episode. I am sorry for the delay, though. I took my kid in for his checkup, and he's doing great. But like always, I have spent days obsessing over the could-haves and the should-haves and what to do next. Anyway, that's not what you're here for, right? So let's talk about what I have for you tonight. I have a case about a man who kidnapped a young woman from the side of the road one night in June of 1991. She was driving home after dropping off her friend at his house. It would be more than three years before there would be any clues to what happened to this young woman. I started looking into this case when I caught part of it on Oxygen one random night. I didn't get to finish the episode, however, I really couldn't stop thinking about it. So like with every other case, I took to Google. So let's jump right in.
Our story starts out with 23-year-old Denise Huber. She was born November 22, 1967, in Modesto, California. She was a driven young woman who excelled in school. She graduated from Los Angeles Baptist High School in 1985. She attended college in Texas and Tennessee. Then later, she received her bachelor's degree in social sciences from the University of California at Irvine. When she finished college, she returned home to live with her parents. June 2nd, 1991, Denise had two tickets to a Morrissey concert in Inglewood, California. For whatever reason, Stephen Horrocks, Denise's current boyfriend, was not able to attend the concert with her. So she took her coworker, Rob Calvert. So that night, she drove her Honda about 15 minutes down the road to Huntington Beach and picked him up. The pair drove to Inglewood, California, which was about an hour from Rob's house. And when they got to the concert, they made some screwdrivers and they did a little pre-gaming in the parking lot before the show. During the concert, they shared a cup of beer like a 20 ounce cup, probably super expensive. And afterwards they headed to Long Beach. And for those who aren't familiar with California, like me, it's about halfway between Inglewood and Huntington Beach. Denise enjoyed a couple more beers here and they stayed there until closing time. She drove Rob home, dropping him off around 2.05. I do have a question, something that was kind of, you know, popping up. How late is closing time in Long Beach in 1991? As of today, Long Beach bars stay open until 2 a.m., which is what I thought. That's about the normal time. So if closing time is 2 a.m., then he had to be home later than 2.05. Long Beach is approximately a half hour from Huntington Beach, so based on that math, they would have had to leave at least by 1.30. Also, not a question, just an interesting little tidbit. At this Morrissey concert, David Bowie joined him on stage during an encore performance of T-Rex Cosmic Dancer. And you really couldn't find this performance anywhere. That is until February 2020, um, it was made available for digital download. The next morning, on June 3rd, her parents saw that her bed was empty, and they noticed that it didn't look like it had even been slept in. Originally, they weren't too worried. They just assumed she was staying with Tammy, another friend from work. Later, when her parents returned home that evening, Denise still wasn't home, and this is when they began to worry. It wasn't normal, one, for their daughter to not come home, but also she would have told them her plans, even if they had changed. She would have figured out a way to get in touch with them. So her parents called Tammy, trying to track down Denise. They were surprised to hear that she hadn't really heard from Denise recently. And she told them that Denise definitely did not stay at her house the previous night. I feel that I must mention that in a couple of sources, this friend has a different name. 
but I have court records and she is identified as Tammy Brown and she is a bad down bitch like I hope to be lucky to ever find a friend like this woman because what she does next is next level friend but we'll get in that in a second the Hubers called Rob, asking him if he had seen her. He told them that she had dropped him off and that he hadn't heard from her since. So back to Tammy. This is kind of my favorite thing, without sounding too creepy. So Tammy, being the bad bitch she is, she jumps in her car and she drives up the likely route that Denise would have taken home after dropping off Rob. Which, if you remember, is only about a 15-minute drive. Well, today, it's a 15-minute drive. And I don't know if maybe in 1991 it was a longer drive, or maybe she had to take a different route. Because her car was found on an isolated freeway. And Denise wasn't anywhere with her car. The car had a flat tire and a dead battery, and experts determined that this was because the emergency flashers had been left on, and Tammy could see that there were skid marks on the road, and that there were pantyhose on the front seat, but her keys and her purse were missing. And her car was in an area that was fairly lit at night, and it had several emergency call boxes visible nearby. It's nice to know that she wasn't completely stranded in the middle of nowhere, with no way to communicate that she would need any help. Looking back, it's almost scary to think that in 1991, cell phones weren't really a thing. And you were kind of forced to rely on the kindness of strangers. There was a chain link fence that bordered the freeway near the car. And it had an opening that led down a gravel slope to an adjacent city street. This street had gas stations, a restaurant, payphones, and hotels. So she really wasn't all that isolated. It seems that if she were to just start hoofing it, she wouldn't have had too far to walk. When police arrived at Denise's car to search for clues, they dispatched helicopters and canine units. The dogs traced her scent about 75 yards from her car before it just disappeared. So you know the police are already thinking something nefarious happened. And like always, the police start talking to the family, asking if there was anyone who wanted to harm Denise or had any beef with her or anything like that. Of course, everyone loves her. She lights up the room. No one has a bad thing to say about her. So the next logical step, investigators trace Denise's steps on the night she went missing. Because Denise had met up with Rob for the concert that night, Police brought him in for questioning, and at the station, he confirmed that he was with Denise and that she had dropped him off just after 2 a.m. It's also noted that he said to have described Denise as attractive and very dressed up. He describes her to be wearing 
a jacket, a dark colored dress, black stockings, and high heels. I'm not sure why this comment is here, but apparently he said that she didn't seem to have any problems with her shoes. So Rob agreed to take a polygraph test and he passed with flying colors. And the police moved on to Steve. His alibi checked out too and he was let go as well. I'm not gonna lie. It's a little spooky recording in my car. I'm hearing noises I don't normally hear while I'm recording and it's kind of throwing me off. I'm sitting here, checking my mirrors, making sure no ghouly goosty go is about to pop out at me and like eat my soul if I believed in things like that, but huh. anyway. So Rob agreed to take a polygraph test and he passed with flying colors and the police moved on to Steve and his alibi checked out and he was let go as well. Quickly, the investigator landed back at square one. Denise's disappearance made local headlines and her parents appeared on TV to plead with the public to share any information someone might have regarding their daughter's disappearance. At this point though, the authorities were preparing for the worst, that Denise had been abducted. I'm sure this theory started popping up after they saw the dog's tracker scent and then lose it. Maybe they saw tire tracks on the side of the road that kind of helped this theory along. The publicity led to thousands of tips. However, none led to anything useful. And unfortunately, the police were forced to call it. This case had gone cold. Okay, so fast forward to 1994. We meet a couple, Elaine and Jack Court, and we cross over to Prescott Valley, Arizona. Elaine, as you'll hear, has a crazy accurate intuition. Another bad bitch in this story. So she and Jack would go to the local swap meet and sell items and paint supplies. It was one of these swap meets in July where they met a contractor named John Famolaro. Famolaro was selling excess paint from his contracting business. So he offered to sell a large amount of paint for bargain. And Elaine and Jack, they were down. So later that day, the couple along with their 10-year-old grandson followed Famolaro to his Cochise drive home in Dewey, Arizona. Famolaro lived in a nice neighborhood, but his property seemed to be a shithole. In the backyard, there were hundreds of paint cans, and there was a rider rental truck backed into the driveway. To Elaine, this rider truck set off so many alarm bells. Famolaro had told the couple that he had just moved to the area, 
but the truck had about six to eight inches of grass grown above the wheels. So this truck had been sitting for a hot minute. And for someone who offered to sell excess paint to them, he wasn't very hospitable. He seemed to be in a rush. And when the 10-year-old kid asked to go to his bathroom, Famolaro told him that the water was shut off. So the couple loaded up the paint and they said their goodbyes. Once everyone was back in the vehicle, Elaine told Jack how odd Famolaro's behavior was. And she brought up the rental truck. And as they were leaving, they noticed the plate was from the state of Maine. So Elaine made a mental note of the plate number. A couple days later, Stephen Gregory, friend and Phoenix police detective, came to the shop to buy some paint. Elaine remembered the strange encounter with Famolaro, and she gave him the information. So Stephen contacted the writer company and was able to confirm that the writer truck had been stolen from Southern California about six months prior. So he passed the information to the Avapai County Sheriff's Department. This was the department that had jurisdiction over Dewey, Arizona. So Yavapai County dispatched Deputy Joe Digiacomo to check out the rider truck. Sorry if I butchered that. So he headed out to 685 Cochise Drive inside the Prescott Country Club development. When he got to the house, he found the moving truck in question backed into the driveway. The truck door was locked, but there was a power cord running from the back of the truck through the backyard of the house. Okay, right now, I wanna go on a tangent for a second. I wanna talk about this property. In some places, I find it described as a duplex. So, you know, two smaller conjoined or connected houses on the same property. And that this power cord that was running from the truck was possibly connected to the house next to 685 Cochise Drive. However, I'm inclined to think that whichever article or book I found that might have been mistaken. But later, I'll talk about a possible neighbor, so maybe there's some weight to it. I'm just gonna shrug it off for now and move on with the story. So because there is this stolen rider truck, so many paint cans littered all over the property, and this really, odd electrical setup, the deputy thought he had rolled up onto an operational meth lab. He knocked on the door, but no one answered. There, then this deputy contacted the narcotics unit while trying to determine if anyone was home. So later, narcotics detective arrived with a search warrant and a locksmith, and they cut that lock right off the truck. And when they slid up the door, the police saw more paint cans and at the end of the power cord was a freezer turned to the on position. It was locked and sealed with masking tape. When they made their way over to the freezer, the police were sure they were about to find a bunch of drugs and they could never have imagined what in their wildest nightmares what they were about to find. When the police cut the tape and opened the lid, the unmistakable odor of decaying flesh flooded the truck and Detective Mike Garcia reached into the black plastic bags inside the freezer 
and felt what he thought was a human arm. I imagine Garcia loudly said, nope, not today, Satan, because once he felt that arm, he closed the lid and he notified Scott Masher, Lieutenant Supervisor of the Homicide and Major Crimes Unit. And he said, yo, there's a dead body. When Masher arrived on the scene, he opened the freezer and saw that it was something large wrapped in black trash bags, as well as what appeared to be, brace yourself, bodily fluids, all of which are frozen to the bottom of the freezer. The bag had frost and ice crystals indicating that whatever this was, it had been here for a hot minute. Masher cut and peeled back layer after layer after one last layer, revealing a naked human body, frozen solid in a fetal position with the hands secured behind the back with metal handcuffs. And finding no identifying information for the body and no signs that this person was killed in the freezer, Masher resealed the freezer and the truck and had everything towed to the forensic pathologist in Phoenix, Arizona, where we show up to the fancy medical lab of the FBI where beautiful intelligent temperance Brandon does her analysis and solves the crime. All jokes aside, I don't know what kind of coverage that warrant had, but I'm sure that after finding a body, they had to amend it. While the police were securing the scene, John Joseph Famolaro pulled into the driveway. And despite there being a body in the truck and that truck now being towed off, he's super calm. The police took him down to the station for questioning and the whole time he was super cooperative until they started talking about the freezer. Famolaro clammed right on up and requested an attorney. Didn't matter if he talked or not. With the truck, they had probable cause to take him into custody for theft. And they went ahead and slapped a murder charge on as well. Famolaro didn't have a criminal record. And according to all of his neighbors, he was pretty much a shut-in. And in the year and a half he had been living in the Prescott Country Club, he actually made complaints against some of his neighbors. Since the summer of 1982, John moved to the neighborhood to care for his parents, especially his father, who had Parkinson's. Again, at this point in my research, I found another article stating that he shared this home with a brother-in-law. I don't know how true this is, but I had my concerns about the house earlier, and I felt that I needed to at least mention this little nugget of information that I can neither confirm nor deny. It kind of tracks, sort of, and the court documents it's implied that his sister even moved to the neighborhood to help with the parents as well, but it never actually did clear up how the property was set up. So like I said, Femolaro zipped his trap, got himself a lawyer, a high-profile defense attorney by the name of Larry Katz. Even though he's regarded as one of the region's most tenacious litigator, I don't know who he is, and I don't know who all he represented. So anyway, the body's been sent to the medical examiner. The police have Famolaro in custody, 
and the investigators continue on with their search of his home. His home was heavily cluttered, like hoarders level cluttered. He kept everything. Officers found stacks of newspapers, books, decades old receipts and, and boxes neatly organized in stacks. The police collected over a hundred thousand items from the house. In the garage, police found two boxes on a shelf labeled Christmas decorations. Later on, the court will simply identify these boxes as 212 and 213. I'm wondering how big this box was because it seems like there was so much in this box. In box 212, there were more large black trash bags like the ones used in the freezer. In those bags, there were smaller boxes containing items that belonged to Denise. Her wallet, her checkbooks, purse, makeup, compact, car keys, pens, lipstick, and her credit cards and her driver's license. Also in this box was the outfit she had on the night of her disappearance. Her jacket, dress, underwear, high heels. The left shoulder strap, <clears throat> The left shoulder strap of the dress was torn and the tip of one of the heels had broken off. Um, Denise's mother will later identify the shoes as being a pair that Denise owned, but she did say that Denise would never have worn them in the condition that they were found. Also, Rob said her shoes were definitely not in that condition the last time he saw her. So I guess this is where you would apply Rob's comment about Denise not having any issues with her shoes, maybe to establish the fact that damage to the shoes was not because of Denise. I guess that actually makes sense. So the outside of this smaller box that had all of Denise's belongings was covered in bloodstains and they had grown moldy and they had a strong foul odor. Also in this box was a bloodied hammer, bloodied men's jeans, bloodied sweatshirt, blood-soaked rags, and surgical gloves turned inside out. Again, how big is this box? It sounds like Mary Poppins' bag. Like they just keep pulling shit out of it. Box 213 had more bloody rags, an empty box for handcuffs, blood-stained nail puller, roll of duct tape, and a white garbage bag. Inside that white garbage bag was a gray tarp that was covered in dried blood. The garbage bag looked similar to the one used to cover up the victim's head and the roll of duct tape was also consistent with the tape that was used to cover the victim's face. And in another corner of this gross garage was a box that had yet another bloodstained tarp. Rolled inside that tarp was a bloodstained shirt. The keys to the handcuffs on the victim's wrists were found in a desk drawer. The key to the freezer was actually in the truck. And in all of this chaos, police found a receipt for the freezer showing that he had bought it on June 10th, 1991, one week after 
Denise's disappearance, and he had had it delivered the very next day. They also found more women's clothing, purses, and social security cards. So police were concerned that the body in the freezer probably wasn't the only victim. And this house had a basement, and at the back of that, it was discovered that Famalaro was digging a hidden underground room. I want to know what kind of underground room. Like, was it a panic room type of thing with, you know, legit walls and locked doors? Or was this a situation where he tore up the concrete in the basement to bury the evidence? Either way, authorities knew that there was a real possibility that there would be more bodies buried on this property. So they called in the cadaver dogs to sniff out the dead bodies. Fortunately, they did not find any more. So Yavapai County reached out to other agencies. They were convinced that this man has to have more victims. And this led them to one woman. I could never find her name and I don't think they even brought her up during his trial, but she told authorities a pretty wild story. She said that she met Famalaro in Phoenix, and I guess he drove her out to the middle of the desert and tried to strangle her. She managed to fight him off and break free from him. And then she was forced to run through the desert without any clothes on. She never reported this crime, which leads me to believe that maybe she was a sex worker. But her purse and her driver's license was later found in Famalaro's home. She was shown a photo lineup and immediately she picked him out. Afterwards, other victims started coming forward, including two women who had reported that Famalaro had handcuffed them to beds without their consent. And there were also other reports of disturbing and violent behavior. Meanwhile, Arizona police contacted the investigators that were involved with Denise's case in California, and they informed them what they had found. And it didn't take long for the police to piece together what had likely happened. And what I didn't tell you all yet, all this looks bad and it's pretty clear that the body in the freezer is Denise. However, the messed up thing is that Famalaro had newspaper clippings about her disappearance. And he even had a VHS recording of the Hubers on TV begging for their daughter to return to them, collecting them like some sick trophy. Okay, so back to the police's theory. At the time of Denise's disappearance, Famalaro had been running a paint business out of a warehouse that was not far from where her car had been found. It was about 15 miles away. So the police went to this warehouse and after spraying some luminol, it showed that the walls in this back room were covered in blood. An article even went so far to say that further testing showed that the blood belonged to both Denise and Famalaro. Although that makes me wonder in 1984 slash 1995, how advanced was DNA testing? Was it accurate enough 
to make that determination before his trial in 1997. Anyway, by this time, police pretty much know what happened up to this point, and for the most part, they aren't that far off. So the working theory was that Famolaro had been hunting for a victim, and he comes across Denise while she was trying to fix a flat tire. He struck her with a hammer, dragged her back to his car, handcuffed her, and then he took her back to his warehouse where he sexually assaulted her and then killed her. Famolaro probably held on to her body with the intention of burying it, along with any evidence in the basement. And remember that secret room in the basement? By this point, in a few sources, the underground room is now described as a pit in the basement, which I bet is probably more accurate. I know Famolaro is or was a contractor, so building a room is probably within his wheelhouse. However, from what I know about this guy, he likely wouldn't have put in the work to build an underground room. And why take so long? I mean, he's been living here for at least a year and a half. And we'll hear he didn't have a job after the start of 1994. I'm just saying, if I had plans to dig a basement pit to bury the body I have in the driveway, I think I wouldn't take nearly two years to dig it. I'd want that body out of the truck ASAP and then ditch the truck as quickly as possible. Well, whatever the reason, I thank you, sir, for being such an idiot. And something I also feel I must mention, because I don't think I talk about it anywhere else, there was mention in a couple articles that Famolaro had some police shirts found in his closet. And I wonder if maybe he wore one the night he ran across Denise because I could see a young woman letting her guard down if a police officer offered to help her. All right, with all that crazy shit found at the house, we now bring our attention to the freezer that made the hour and a half trek from Dewey, Arizona to the Phoenix Medical Examiner's office where researchers attempt to identify the victim. And brace yourself, guys. I'm going to give you a trigger warning now. I found the court documents, and while I definitely won't be as graphic as that was, I still feel that I need to tell you guys what went on during the autopsy. So right off the bat, we have to remind you that these bags are stuck to the bottom of the freezer in a frozen layer of body fluids. At first, I'm like, ew, why? Like, wouldn't it just be frozen with ice crystals? And then it occurred to me, maybe he had the freezer off for a time. Or maybe even more disturbing, what if he kept looking at her? So really, I guess what my question is, what kind of body fluid? I realize that this is a minute detail, but really, it is so disturbing. Now that I have taken a break, I'll continue on. So, Dr. Ann 
Buckholtz did the examination and autopsy, and we're just going to jump right in. First off, they pulled this body out of three layers of black trash bags, and they discovered a white plastic bag wrapped around the head. They cut that away, and they find a layer of gray tape covering the mouth and the up eyelids. Something I had to remember was that this body was found in the fetal position with the arms handcuffed behind it, stuffed into a freezer. So I imagine that the medical examiner couldn't really do much, but carefully thaw this body. And by the way, it took two days, two days for that body to thaw enough for swabs to be collected. When the tape was removed, a wadded cloth fell out of her mouth as the body thawed. The handcuffs on the victim's wrist were so tight that Dr. Buckholtz could not slip her fingers beneath them, and she needed to use a bolt cutter to remove them. They were able to get prints from the body, and those matched to the fingerprints taken for Denise's California driver's license. Denise's skull was described as basically shattered. After a reconstruction of the skull, it was determined that Denise's head had suffered at least 31 separate blows. Dr. Ann also came to the conclusion that there weren't any defensive wounds, and despite the tightness of the handcuffs, the wrists were not bruised. And also, there didn't seem to be any physical trauma to the genitals. However, I googled so that you wouldn't have to. It is absolutely possible for sexual assault to occur without evidence of trauma. And we can all guess, but the cause of death was blood force trauma to the head. So who is John Famalero? Well, he was born on June 10th, 1957 in Long Island, New York to Anne and Angelo. He was the youngest of three children. When he was still a baby, the family moved to Santa Ana, California. His father was an Air Force veteran and a businessman, and it's the 1950s, so you know Anne is definitely a stay-at-home mom. But she was considered to be the dominant force in the family. Angelo was a passive man, and he just tolerated the demands and Anne's verbal abuse. According to most, the children had a really good relationship with their father. He was very loving and supportive, but the relationship with their mother was described as erratic. Typically, the children just followed their father's lead, and they would just give in to her demands to avoid confrontation. Anne had to control everything. What the children wore, she selected their classes, she rummaged through their belongings, and she even eavesdropped on their phone calls. The neighborhood children never played at the Familaro home, and they rarely ever interacted with them at all. The family went to church regularly, but they never spoke to anyone. The children were all described as very focused and well-behaved with the children staring straight ahead at all time. That sounds creepy to me, though. Anne kept the family's yard very tidy, very neat, but guess what? She was a damn hoarder, too, y'all. 
Inside the house, it was messy because there was stacks of newspapers, magazines, food, laundry, silver, and boxes. Some of her hoarding was a result from her fierce anti-communism. She believed the family needed to hoard food and silver to survive the possible Russian invasion. As a child, Famalero was weak and he was often sick. He had a small frame and he was very thin. He barely had any friends and he was described as a loner. He wasn't a violent kid, but he did seem to have a hyperactive disorder. He would move around constantly and needed an organized activity to focus his attention. He would become obsessive in symmetry. Like, you know, when someone would touch his shoulder on one side, he would need the other side to be touched so that it would, quote, be even. He also, not surprisingly, started to hoard as well. He would collect piles of books, papers, and magazines in his room. He was bullied at school, and because children can be so cruel, he was nicknamed Femalaro because he was effeminate and meek. And his quirks and inability to sit still and focus often got him into trouble at home and school. Growing up, Famalaro didn't get very much attention from his mother, who instead focused on his older brother, Warren. He was gregarious and he excelled in school activities. And Marion, his older sister, stepped in playing the role of his protector. She would help him with his homework, and she rode the bus with him so he wouldn't get picked on by the other children. And this is where it gets weird as fuck. Personally, I'm not a fan of always blaming the parents for how a person turns out, especially if there are multiple children in the home who seem to be okay. But as we keep going, we find that maybe she might have had something to do with how this kid turned out maybe just a skosh. As these boys got older, she would discipline them with a belt, and she continued to bathe them well into their preteen years. Warren even said that Anne would pay extra special attention to scrubbing his genitals. She would tell him that it was a special area that needed to be cleaned properly. I read that and I just felt so uncomfortable. Anne was so obsessed with making sure that her children did not engage in and were not exposed to any type of sexual activity. She wouldn't allow them to take any sex education classes and she did not permit them to see anything on TV or in movies that was more intimate than hand-holding. She would enter the boys' room at night to make sure they weren't masturbating. And she forbade all of her children to date. And really, all of that was creepy, to say the least. And cringeworthy, absolutely. But it was pretty tame compared to the crazy shit she pulls later on. Like when Warren was attending college... Anne secretly followed him and his girlfriend, Mary, to a motel room. And she waited until Warren left and then barged into the room and confronted Mary. She cussed at Mary and slapped her in the face. And then she kept rambling on about religion and sex. And she told Mary that she was going to die that same night. 
And when Mary asked her how that was going to happen, Anne tackled her and began choking her. Mary was able to break free and she called the police, but Warren uh, later persuaded her not to press charges. This family sounds so crazy. I kind of want a story on just them. So as a teenager, Anne sent Famolaro to a seminary. She was hoping that, quote, a lot of that would rub off on him. And after he graduated, he went to a Catholic liberal arts college. While he attended this school, he met a young woman named Ruth. And he had an on and off again relationship for about two or three years with her. During this time, Ruth ended up getting pregnant, but she had it terminated. And close to the end of the relationship, Ruth got pregnant again. And this time, Famalaro proposed to her. However, she said no, and she gave the child up for adoption and moved to Texas. Ruth's decision to end the relationship and give up the child in her second pregnancy were painful and traumatic for Famalaro. Her decision to give up the child for adoption was particularly upsetting. He had hoped to raise the child himself, but he lost a court battle for custody and was later unable to learn where the baby was. At this point, uh, <laughs> I'm only adding this in because it's kind of funny, like in a ironic kind of way. So at this point, Anne becomes involved in local politics and she's running a campaign against abortion, pornography, and the local adult theater. She ran for a seat on the Santa Ana City Council, but on the same day she announced her candidacy, Warren was arrested for sexually molesting a 10-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy, and for having unlawful intercourse with a 17-year-old girl. Thus ended Anne's short-lived political campaign. Warren was convicted and was committed to Patton State Hospital as a mentally disordered sex offender. So to get away from the embarrassment, his parents moved to Prescott, Arizona. Okay, well maybe there is something to blame the parents for in this case. More specifically, Anne. Now we have a brother and he's a total creep. It makes me wonder about how his sister turned out. And after a little more searching, seems Marion turned out just fine. However, pretty sure that's because she got the hell away from her mother. She cut off all contact with her. And hey, you know what? I get it. Just because she's your mother doesn't mean you have to put up with the shit she put those kids through. So good for her. Famalaro went to a few different colleges. He even had a goal of becoming a chiropractor. And it was during this time that he actually saved a woman from being assaulted at knife point. He saw the assailant grab the woman and hold a knife at her side. He tackled the assailant, took the knife away, and pinned the guy to the ground until police had arrived. Apparently, he studied martial arts. As Famalero got older, he became more social and even had several girlfriends over the years. They all said that he had a good sense of humor and he was described as fun, intelligent, nice, respectful, considerate, and even polite. His ex-girlfriends also said that he could be secretive, manipulative, and a smooth talker. 
as an adult, he still had those mood swings I mentioned earlier. At times he was manic with high energy, but then he could also be withdrawn and depressed. He remained deeply religious, but he was more open-minded about sex. And he continued to hoard papers, books, and boxes. He became paranoid about his possessions, keeping his room under lock and key. And when people were around, he would get nervous about his things. Eventually, Famalaro gave up the chiropractor dream and he became a handyman. He sold a number of different services, house cleaning, maintenance, and painting. Later though, that turned into a house painting business. He hired a team of painters and moved his business into a warehouse on Verdugo Drive in Laguna Hills, California. I checked, this warehouse no longer exists. There's a public storage facility on the property now. On May 27, 1991, this was a week before Denise's disappearance, Famalaro made a 42-minute phone call to the Hotline Help Center in Orange County. This hotline helped callers with issues of depression and thoughts of suicide, and it was also used as a prayer line. I had never heard of these hotlines being used as a prayer line. Like, what does that even mean? Did you call them up and ask them to pray for you? Or do they, like, connect you to a church? In June 1991, Marion received a phone call from Famalaro. He was crying and upset about something that had happened many years earlier. I wanted to know what he was crying about, so I went to the court documents. That's when I saw the sentence that I had probably skipped over half a dozen times. And I don't really think it hit me until I found out what kind of his shitbag his brother Warren was. So this emotional phone call to his sister was because he was accusing Warren of molesting him when he was just a child. Now, I want to be clear, I did not ignore this fact because John is an evil son of a bitch. The defense tried to use this phone call to his sister to show that Famalaro was in an emotional state and that that was the reason he kidnapped and murdered Denise. But he never even mentioned her during this call. So the court ruled that her testimony of this phone call was inadmissible hearsay. So the details of the call ended up buried deep in the court documents. In the summer of 1992, Famalaro moved to Arizona to be closer to his parents, to take care of them, because his father had been hospitalized. Marion and her family moved to Arizona as well. Her daughters had a close relationship with Famalaro, and he was very generous to them and his parents. So now, we have come full circle, because in 1994, Famalaro was arrested when he had just returned home with his mother after visiting his father at the hospital. Famalero stood trial in Orange County since the actual murder happened in Laguna Hills. After several delays, the trial finally began on May 8, 1997. And during this trial, we'll hear about Famalero's history with women and how his behavior would be aggressive and inappropriate and just downright creepy. I read in an article that said Famalaro's first relationship was with a woman named Helen Lyons. 
This article goes on to say that it was a painful and lengthy affair that was strained by an abortion, and Lyons decided to end the relationship by transferring to a college in Missouri. This woman was never mentioned. Well, maybe she was, but her name wasn't Helen Lyons. If you remember, I told you about a similar situation with a woman identified as Ruth. It is possible that he had serious relationships like this one with multiple women. However, the situations are so similar that I'm just not sure I believe that. Don't get me wrong, at the end of the day, these small details don't really matter. It just makes it a little harder for me and my research. But I digress. Darlene Miller started dating Famolaro after he spent years wooing her with flowers and gifts. Later, the couple traveled to New York for a romantic weekend getaway. They stayed in a luxury hotel on Times Square, and halfway through the weekend, during some steamy foreplay, Famolaro snapped a pair of handcuffs on her and secured them to a bar near the window. Then he stripped her naked, opened the curtains, and left her there alone for hours. She was visible through the open window, and she couldn't get herself free. He didn't return until after the play that they had planned to see had already started. When Famalaro returned, he was still laughing. And at the trial, Darlene testified that she played along with him until they returned to California. A year later, Famalaro dated another woman. Her name was Kate Colby. And these two got serious. They even talked about marriage. But once again, there was an incident involving handcuffs. He managed to rekindle the relationship, but she ended up breaking it off permanently afterwards. And when she was asked why she stayed with him after the incident, she testified that he was a very smooth talker and he could be convincingly sensitive when explaining such situations. On May 22nd, 1997, after only five hours of deliberation, the jury convicted him of murder, sodomy, and kidnapping because an allegation of sodomy combined with murder qualified as a special circumstance under California law, Famalaro was faced with the death penalty. And in California, the death penalty sentencing portion of a trial occurs after conviction and is known as the penalty phase. And this is when Larry Katz tried to introduce the testimony that he was bullied as a child and molested by his brother. So the prosecution subpoenaed Warren and threatened to arrest him before he agreed to testify against his brother, denying the molestation accusation. On September 6, 1997, Famalaro was formally sentenced to death by Judge John Ryan, and he was sent to death row at San Quentin. Famalaro's appellate court attorney claimed that he was denied a fair trial because of the media attention that this case received. His attorney argued that his trial should have been moved out of Orange County because of prejudicial pretrial publicity that supposedly contaminated the jury pool. But the Supreme Court told him to fuck right off. In a 56-page decision, they found that Orange County Superior Court Judge John J. Ryan properly conducted the jury selection process to ensure that the jury was fair and unbiased. Overall, this process 
took many years to resolve. Although, I mean, it's not likely he would have been put to death quickly anyway, since California imposed an informal moratorium on the capital penalty while the argument on the legality of lethal injections continues. But in 2011, his death penalty conviction was once again confirmed by the Supreme Court. Well, guys, we did it. What a crazy case this was. It never ceases to amaze me how people can do awful things to each other and to their own children, even. It truly breaks my heart how much pain this piece of shit caused Denise's family. And what really scares me is at 23, this could have easily have been me. Out having fun at night, oblivious to all the dangers that can lurk around, and who did absolutely nothing wrong. I am glad that her friends and family got some closure. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode tonight. This episode was hosted, produced, and edited by me. And I would love to hear from you guys. I'm hoping to find like-minded people who enjoy true crime as much as I do. So if you like what you heard, leave me a review. You can come find me on Facebook at my so-called true crime podcast. I'm on Twitter at my so-called crime pod. However, I have no idea what I'm doing on Twitter, but I am trying. So, hey, send me a tweet. I'm on Instagram at my true crime pod. You can email me at my so-called true crime pod at gmail.com. Also, come check out my website. It's brandystruecrimeparadise.com. It's everything that I have true crime related all in one spot. Whatever you do, just be safe out there and I hope to catch you guys next time. Good night.